Welcome to HARP, the Human Analysis and Research Program. This program is an in-depth look at the species known as Homo sapiens, originating on Sol 3. Archives contain historical documents, eyewitness accounts, and other recorded media pertaining to the behavior, life cycle, society, and evolution of humans. You are currently accessing Archive A02, Security Level Alpha Detected. Restrictions cleared. Read-only files loaded. Beginning archive playback. The Great Red Squiggly Line by Dachandi663 Read by Nicholas Merrick Matthias drummed his fingers on the table and found himself thinking two things. The first was that he really wanted to know what genius had decided the expense of hauling an authentic wooden table up a tether, loading it into a skip jumper, and flying it to the edge of the circuit was worth it. Sure, it looked good, sat there in the ambassador's suite, its dark surface shining under the daylights of the orbital station. But it was huge. Part of Matthias's job after the negotiations were finalized with whatever race happened to have a desire to trade yet another stone wheel for a subliminal propulsion unit, was to handle the logistics of moving said stone wheel or subliminal propulsion unit. So, when he looked at the table with no visible seams or joints, he wondered what poor bastard had to cut a hole in the deck plates just to fit it into the room. The Krent dignitary was still reading through the list of items humanity had offered. Fay, the word humanity had begun to use in place of they for genders that fell outside the normal binary divide that constituted most life on Earth, had been going over the same items for the last six hours. Which led Matthias on to his second thought of the day. When the hell was lunch due? This word, Caliph, the Krent dignitary said. Matthias leaned over, careful to avoid the barbs on the Krent's arms, and read it out. Music? Music? It's an art form, sound-based, very popular with humans. We have no need for trivialities. The Krent scratched the word music off the list and continued going down. The Krent scratched the word music off of the list and continued going down. It joined a longer list of words erased. Music. TV, photography, anything that wasn't productive to society in the Krent's many, many eyes was eliminated. Matthias sighed and watched the list dwindle down. As a Delta III classified species, it was a short list of things Matthias could offer to the Krent to begin with in exchange for their much more advanced equivalents. No weaponry, nothing of strategic importance. As soon as Kalith had pointed out the fact that their biology was sufficiently different to render human medicine so far beyond useless, it actually approached biological warfare. Thank you, Department of Diplomatic Relations, for flagging that one. It was reduced to a single sheet of options. Why don't we break for refreshments? The ambassador said. Matthias felt his stomach leap into his throat. We'll convene again in one hour. The human ambassador shook hands with his Krent counterpart, and the two species retreated to their respective ends of the room. Matthias picked up a bone china plate and layered it up with alluvian sushi rolls and that squid-pork hybrid they grew on the station itself. The diplomats would handle the small talk. 
that skill where you said a lot of words and made the other guy feel good without actually promising anything to anyone in any kind of reasonable time frame. Matthias retired to a chair and set his tablet up on the table beside him to review his notes so far as he ate. Six hours. They whittled a list of things the Krent deemed worthy down to a new hydroponic system and enough detolonite to get them maybe a tenth of the way around the circuit. And in exchange? Tobias tabbed through their offerings on his screen and wished he could have it all. He took a bite of skork and felt then heard the Krent behind him as the barbs brushed against his back. It was one of their own assistants, Sulat or Salmon or something like that. Suleiman? That was it. Matthias turned with half a squid hanging out of his mouth and tried to slurp it up with all the decorum of the human race. Can I help? he asked. The Krent was staring at the tablet's screen. Two columns, human on the left and the original Krent inventory on the right. Their language looked like the result of giving a child a hole punch and then setting them loose with it. Matthias's notes were scrawled across both of the columns. This, Suleiman said, pointing at a word on the screen. Ah, that should be recommended. Matthias said, changing the word to add in the second M that he had forgotten. The Krent gripped Matthias's shoulder. Fair fingers dug so deep Matthias could feel them pierce the suit he was wearing. Where did it go? Suleiman demanded. What? The line! What line? There was a red line below the word when it was incorrect. You read English? Of course, Suleiman said. Of course, Matthias thought to himself. Level three. He probably knew more human languages than most humans. But where is the line now? I corrected the word so it went away. You didn't put it there to begin with. Why would I put a line below a word I misspelled rather than just fix the word? Then... The computer does it. If I make a typo, it highlights it. Without you telling it to. All automatic. And it does this for all words. Well, all words it knows. I had to add a few based on your translations. It could learn. Sure. And then the Krent was gone, leaving Matthias with only a sore shoulder and a cold meal. He picked through the rest of the inventory, marking off what he thought they might be able to bargain for without much optimism, before putting his plate away, ready for the afternoon session to begin. As they all sat down, the Krent were animated, muttering between themselves. Suleiman kept pointing at Matthias, and the others would lock their eyes on him. Honored guests, shall we begin? The human ambassador said. If he expected the Krent to quiet down, he was sorely mistaken. No sooner had the ambassador begun speaking, he was interrupted by Calith, who stood and stubbed one sharp claw in Matthias's direction. We want the red squiggly line. Excuse me? He has it, Kalis said, and Matthias shrank back in his seat. We want it. Anything. Everything. Take the whole list if you need to. Matthias, the ambassador said, obviously non-pulsed. Care to fill us in? Um, I think Faye mean the spell checker. Spell checker? On, on my tablet. The red squiggly line! Suleiman shouted from across the table. 
I was reading my notes, and Suleiman saw it, and Vey seemed impressed by it. It's a marvel, Kalith said. But it's just a spell checker, the ambassador said. If we don't have enough to trade, we can find more. Your ships still use skip technology. We can offer magnitudinal drives that will improve their efficiency a thousandfold. Well, I'm not sure. Fine! Blacklight rifles! And one, one, Shrevmech for your armies. We know you humans like your weaponry. A mech? Gah! You humans are impossible. Five, ten, a hundred, as many as you need. Uh, Matthias, do you think we can facilitate this, uh, trade? Level three tech for a spell checker? All eyes fell on Matthias. The Krent were gripping the authentic wood table so hard fair claws left marks in its surface, and he felt himself wince for the poor logistics tech who'd have to patch it. The humans weren't far behind in their freneticism. The look of lust in their eyes enough to turn husbands and wives into jealous exes. Matthias scrolled through the list on his tablet and typed in a few more entries. The little red squiggle appeared beneath Vlacklight. I think we can arrange it, he said. The Krent exploded into celebration and began patting each other on the back for having accomplished such an amazing deal. Kalith followed Suleiman over to Matthias's tablet to look at the line he had just traded a small pittance for. He was ecstatic, asking Matthias to fix and break, fix and break, words over and over. Eventually, hands were shaken, and the final inventory signed. One red squiggly line for enough technology to leapfrog humanity several centuries. The ambassador came after the delegates had left and shook Matthias's hand. That was a fine job, some quick thinking, son, he said. Matthias just nodded in complicit agreement. He'd receive awards for this, the ambassador said. Commonwealth medals and a tour of the circuit. He'd even get a commission if he played his cards right. Ambassador, Matthias said finally, when we hand over the spell checker, what about the grammar checker? The ambassador's jaw dropped as if the station's gravity had picked up a thousand extra G's localized to his face. For a moment, he was unsteady on his feet and Matthias had to help him into a chair. The great green squiggly line was all the ambassador could say. Why do we defer to humanity? By JDM 5544. Read by Nicholas Merrick. Why do we defer to humanity, you ask? The answer is a simple one for any of the rim species, but I understand that it may be more difficult to understand from your point of view. Allow me to explain. My people, the Nirani, are rightfully considered the greatest scientific minds in our little corner of the galaxy. We are the ones who discovered the galactic conglomerate, after all. We also had the highest rate of technological advancement in our own little region of the arm, and were expected to surpass the galactic conglomerate within the century. Quite a feat, wouldn't you say? The Vagris are clearly the most populous, having a population of close to half a trillion, compared to humanity, the second most populous, with just over 10 billion. In addition, the Vagris lay hundreds of eggs at a time and reach adulthood in a single human year. Why do we use the human's orbit of their home planet as a standard? 
simple. It was so close to the average of all our home planet's orbits that it was easier to use rather than create an entire new system. Now, I was saying about the Vagrus. This means that genius occurs far more often in their species than in others for purely mathematical reasons, allowing them to achieve scientific breakthroughs quite often. The sign, ma'am, have the greatest of the arts of all the species in the rim. A simple way for us to test for empathy is to read a sign, ma'am, tragedy to the suspect, and if they do not break down in sadness, then we know of their condition. But their arts go beyond just literature, portraits, paintings, sculptures, and even music. No one can hope to surpass them in these regards. And last but not least, the Thurians, the greatest warriors in the Rim. Their knowledge of war is unmatched. Strategies and tactics are taught to them from a young age. To face a Thurian assault fleet with anything less than overwhelming force is simply suicide, and even then victory is not guaranteed. When the humans first met us, we were in the middle of a long and bloody war with no end in sight. The sign ma'am were simply hoping to avoid conflict wherever possible. Thurian tactics would often conquer, Vagrus numbers would overwhelm, and Nirani science rained death upon all. This three-way war was fought for over a hundred human years, and it was over in less than three human years. Human science nearly matched our own and would often understand how our weapons worked, if not how to replicate it. A single human soldier was oftentimes enough in simple combat for hundreds of Vagrus, and with the proper tactics as much as a thousand. Human tactics meant that for the first time in the war, the Thurians faced surprise attacks, traps, and a hundred other things that neither the Vagrus nor my own people had thought of. Perhaps most astonishing of all, the greatest of the human arts was on par with the sign ma'am's own. In short, humanity was the second best at everything, which meant they were the best in this war. They struck where we were weak. They did not attempt to match Narani science with human science, but rather with numbers. They did not match the Vagrus with numbers, but rather with tactics. And they did not match the Thurians with tactics, but rather with science. Did humanity conquer us, you ask? No, though we all expected it. No, instead humanity defeated us all and formed the Council. We expected the Council to be little more than a front for human interest, and for a time it was. The humans granted rights to colonize worlds that had never known them, to trade with others in unfair exchange, yet in time, the humans did something most peculiar. The Narani are organized by scientific advancement and degrees. In short, the more knowledge you can prove you have, the higher your position in our society. For example, I myself have seven degrees in fields related to war and ships, and thus a place in the middle of Narani society. The Vagris have an even simpler system. The eldest among them lead those younger. As they live and die quickly, the oldest only ever having lived to be 25 human years old, their leaders are routinely replaced. The Thurians had a military hierarchy, of course. Their greatest warriors and generals making up the leadership of their world and keeping them organized and defended. Their high commander is a veteran of 70 battles or so I've heard. The sign mams are perhaps the closest to humanity in the sense of there not really being any true government 
Instead, their people debate on a course of action based on its merits to their culture. Rarely is anything done on their planet as a result. Humanity, however, had a curious method of government. Individuals would tell the masses they, and they alone, were the best choice for leadership, and would debate others who claimed otherwise. Yet, often, the positions they came to occupy were not ones of singular power, but collective power. It took the agreement of over 600 individuals to make any decisions, and even then it could be overturned by their military leader, who himself could make no laws. And even then, it could be overturned by their justice dispensers. It, it was a confusing system. We quickly learned that humanity almost never agreed with each other, and would often have conflict with those whose policies are almost identical. They had an unusual idea called compromise. While they despised it, it seemed to be the only way laws were passed. It was where they would concede on some points to enforce others. In fact, it was this very disagreement that allowed the other species of the Rim to gain power in this council established by the humans. But by this point, humanity had set themselves up as traitors and diplomats of the Ring. It had been a scarce thirty years since the war had ended, and yet the humans had already made it nearly impossible to wage war against each other. The Nirani needed Thurian ships to defend against pirates while our science ships traveled. The Thurian needed Sinemam music and arts to inspire their troops. The Sinemam needed Vagris materials to make their great works of art. And the Vagris needed Narani technology to ensure a humane quality of life for their many citizens. And there was humanity, traveling between the stars and trading with all. The middlemen, as they called themselves, and aided in settling disputes throughout the rim. Yes. I assure you this is important to answer your question. The war had required all of our resources for the hundreds of years we had fought, and as a result, our exploration efforts were non-existent. As the war ended, only humanity had the resources to commit to exploration, and they did so. And as we gained resources, so did we. In the last ten years, the Council of the Rim has nearly tripled in size, and even here, humanity was odd. Its colonies, as opposed to being thankful and subservient to the homeworld, as was the case with every other species on the Rim, instead demanded more freedoms and autonomy. And while it never escalated to full-scale war, it became quite tense among human colonies. So imagine our surprise when we met you, the galactic conglomerate, ruler of the galactic center, and rightful ruler of all the rest. And when you oh-so-graciously offered us a non-voting seat in your parliament, we discussed it, and we decided to reject it and offer you a trade agreement. When you then sent us a proclamation that we would be conquered as a slave species if we did not accept your offer, once more we convened and discussed the issue, and once more, despite knowing it, would lead to war, chose to reject your offer. Why do we defer to humanity, you ask? The answer is simple. Humanity, the most divided and diverse species in the rim, of any we had met until that point, voted on it, and they nearly unanimously voted to reject both deals. Imagine that, if you would. The single most divided species in our area had voted twice 
and near total agreement to reject this deal. Is there any parallel in your history? They assured us that we could fight against you, and more than that we could win. We couldn't conquer you, no, but we could certainly wear you down. And we have, haven't we? This war has been going on for nearly five years by our measurements. And with humans at the lead, we have won battle after battle against you. This is your final attempt to gain knowledge and, as the humans say, get an edge on us. How does it feel to know that you failed? To know that you started a war with the second best species at everything? Because I will tell you what you should feel. No, not you personally, I suppose, but your leaders. The organizers of this war. The humans have a saying based off of a limbless reptile native of their home planet. It can be very dangerous, and there is only one sure way to kill it. To cut the head off a snake. In this case, you are the snake. Your leaders are the head. So tell me, what do you think your leaders should feel? They should feel nothing but fear. On the Concept of Hate by P.B. Monster Read by Nicholas Merrick Annals of the Great Galactic War The Library of Congress on Terra Department for Xenos Propaganda Translation Size 242.2 terabytes. Introductory Essay 33. On the Concept of Hate. Humanity made first contact a mere 500 standard orbits after first leaving its planet's atmosphere. By this point, they had already expanded beyond their native system of Sol into the Centauri and Sirius systems, colonizing four worlds, three moons in addition to their homeworld Terra and their second core world, Mars. First contact was made with the Galactic Council member race Seer in 192 BI, before impact, who found humanity in its natural state, at war. The Centauri system was fighting for independence from Sol, attacking the homeworlds primarily by raiding the colonial supply lines with large, clunky FTL jump ships, and Mars was in the end stages of an on-planet civil war, cleansing the population of the genetically engineered first generation of settlers, who opposed throughout terraforming of their ancestral home. The enthusiastic negotiations for the first trade agreements and technology transfer were in no way impaired by the ongoing warfare, but eventually were cut short when the seer finished their formal assessment of the young race. Hopelessly small, weakened by infighting, overextended in resources by their war economy, and spiritually divided by artificial changes to their genetic code, humanity appeared weak, and their freshly terraformed worlds ripe for taking. Orbital deployment onto the Sirius worlds began in 90 BI, and the Seer were able to leverage their moment of surprise and superior numbers to easily take both worlds. During their first orbit on Sirius AA and AB, the Seer discovered what we today consider the core characteristics of any human society. Firstly, unity. Once attacked, all of humanity's infighting was suspended practically 
overnight. In the case of Mars, mid-genocide. Centaurian soul forces began assembling for probing attacks on the Sirius system and its supply lines within the first week. It cannot be overstated how quickly the first surprise attack was answered with counter-aggression. Secondly, hierarchy structure and empathy. The sorry state the seer thought the human war economy to be is in fact the natural state that emerges when as little as 10,000 humans start to cooperate. If resources exist, they are used to depletion as fast as possible. If any form of central management emerges, it gets circumvented by independent actors almost immediately. At no point in human history has there ever emerged a guiding hierarchy, a collective consciousness, or even an overmind. Humanity as a species is not at all homogenous in its purpose. Some theories claim that human individuals are unable to feel empathy for more than 200 other individuals. The resulting social structure is highly individualistic and extremely fractured. The resulting chaos surprisingly results in a high-performance economy that is very robust against perturbance. Thirdly, and most importantly, is the alien concept of hate. One cannot understand a human without understanding hate. The concept is closest described as the self-enforced emotion of extreme and irrational dislike, and is a purely mental condition totally unique to humanity. It is independent of body chemistry and all other external influences save one. The target of a human's hate needs to be different. It matters not in what way or even to what degree. As long as something can be distinguished as the other, a human can bring himself to hate it. Hate is often greatly amplified if groups of humans agree on a common target for their hatred. At its peak, hate defies every other concept, including fear, morality, logic, and even truth. Examples are numerous throughout this work, but the author will begin with one example that lies conveniently close chronologically. Within the first standard orbit, the entire remaining human population of the Sirius system was lost in three separate slave rebellions, totaling almost 16 million colonists and 500,000 hastily deployed colonial troopers in seer casualties. It has since been proven many times that human slave populations begin to become highly unstable, starting at around 4,000 individuals much earlier if self-governed. Here, we can directly see the effects of allowing humanity's hate to amplify socially. Chances for escape, or even mere survival on Sirius, were practically zero, and the slave population was very aware of the punishment for rebellion. Yet they rose up on three different occasions. Neither logic nor fear could stop them from hating their captors to the point where they gladly died just for the opportunity to kill Seer and deprive them of slave labor. In the end, many of humanity's other qualities can indirectly be attributed to their ability to hate. 
but the most obvious candidate is their ability to engineer. As a general rule, it can be assumed that a human will attempt to weaponize every piece of technology he is introduced to. This process almost always leads to success in unexpected ways, not only resulting in a weapon system where there was nothing more than an innocent concept, but also almost always vastly improving the technology in order to make it more potent at killing. It cannot be overstated how dangerous it is to introduce humans to new technology, either through negligence in war or by exploiting their love for trade in times of apparent peace. It is difficult to say who was more surprised, humans or seer. When a standard-sized human battlecruiser group proved to be more than able to stand toe-to-toe against a seer collective carrier fleet, in hindsight, unsurprising considering that Terra had managed to get into a century-long arms race with every single one of her colonies. Certainly, the total lack of force shields was a disadvantage in the beginning, but ablative armor proved to be almost as effective, especially in its ability to completely absorb a single hit from even the highest caliber of guns, and then only really weakening the ship at that one single spot on its hull. The lack of an ion beam weapon was a disadvantage, but only insofar that it made extensive use of expensive antimatter missiles necessary to bring down the enemy shields. And centuries of atmospheric warfare had made humanity experts at dogfighting and anti-aircraft combat, often resulting in Seer supercarriers running out of fighters mere minutes into a battle. Sirius was reclaimed within five standard orbits. Shortly after antimatter fabrication on the equatorial particle accelerator on Luna started ramping up. Unsurprisingly, humanity followed their new enemies when they fled to the stars. They found a system full of planets and moons not so different from their own home, and they were hungry. They sent wave after wave completely unfazed by any number of losses the frantic total defense effort of Great Seer inflicted upon their fleets. Every wave of new ships, better, faster, stronger than the last one, and every one as hungry for blood. In the end, the Seer had no choice but to give up the battlefield. Thoroughly beaten and stripped of even the last vessel capable of returning fire, they gave up the system and thought the tribute paid. This is where they were taught their second lesson on the concept of hate. Sure, the humans had settled their new system, but it never had been about getting even. The seer had killed their brothers, and every human hated the seer. So they followed. They took system by system, giving no quarter, and expected none. It took the Galactic Council seven standard orbits to decree a trade embargo against humanity. No human, not a smuggler, or a pirate even cared. Here, the seer, trapped between a very displeased Galactic Council, watching the seer sector destabilize right in the middle of the galaxy, and a quickly growing threat to their very existence, decided to up the game. They voted to send a message and 33 standard orbits after first contact, an unmarked trader 
infected Centauri BB with the Red Storm pathogen, carefully engineered for Homo sapiens. Infection rate was beyond 90% before the dying started. Three billion were lost within a week. Terra quarantined the entire system. The seer thought the message well received. Then reports reached them of Terran ships firing on vessels leaving Centauri AB. They were amused by how much panic cleansing of a single planet caused. Then reports of quarantine on Mars reached them. They grew concerned. Then, Terra declared all FTL travel illegal on pain of death. And for the next standard orbit, there was nothing but silence from the sector. Then the reports from the rest of the spiral arms started pouring in. Entire cruiser fleets begging for hydrocarbons at faraway planets. A human diplomat finally arriving to speak before the Galactic Council and being turned away. Human pirates smuggling between foreign systems, paying out horrendous sums to everybody selling vaccines, but fleeing port when sighting other human vessels. In the end, there are only estimates how many died. Most scholars agree that the death toll has to approach 100 billion. With Terra, Luna, and Mars carrying the brunt of the death toll, and not a single planet, moon, or station managing to avoid infection. Humanity's natural tendencies to distrust central authority, to circumvent artificial limits on trade and travel, had been their undoing. Critique from the Council was harsh, but in the end, the human problem seemed to have come to an unfortunate yet sudden end. Even in the event of an intact larger settlements, the general population seemed subdued and properly scared. The galactic community got the third lesson on the concept of hate when the seer tried to settle a system that had recently been conveniently depopulated. The lack of records from Hale 8 maybe should have alerted the bureaucracy that Hale 8G might not have been completely empty when the seer resettlement started. Yet, unfortunately, this fact only became public knowledge when humanity managed to draw every eye to the small world as it was driven from its deep-crust fortress colonies by extensive seer gassing. On their way out of the system, the small surviving population sent their own message from their little colonial freighters. They dropped what looked to be a relatively small amount of primitive fission-only atomics, far too little in number and yield to qualify as a proper orbital glassing. And they even managed to miss the Seer Capital Collective. But hours after they had jumped away, the Seer managed to find humanity's message in the fallout. Cobalt-60, Tantalum-182, Gold-198, or Decrypted, if we can't have this biosphere, nobody will. And as the fallout from these salted bombs kept raining down onto Hale 8G, biodiversity was reduced by 99.99% within the first standard orbit. Still shocked by the concept of spite, the seer were shaken to the core when they detected a cloaked gravitational well projector on the surface of a small, uninhabited moon orbiting their homeworld in Syragese. By the time they managed to find and destroy it, it was already too late. Too late for Syragese and all eight other worlds 
see your core worlds. In hindsight, it was now clear that the great seer had managed to get into what humanity refers to as a spiral of violence, something even humans try to avoid. Not many minds could claim to have seen a moon deorbit above a densely populated world before. Today, almost everybody has. Thanks to human engineers weaponizing their first truly unique discovery and the galactic media that broadcasted all nine events in a live conference across the galaxy. Before evacuation even left the planning stage, a tidal wave hundreds of meters in height had destroyed every mega collective less than 500 kilometers inland. Estimating the death toll of this cataclysm alone is impossible and futile, especially because after an average of four days, these very tidal forces in turn tore their respective moons apart raining a billion billion tons of rock onto Syragese and her sister worlds. In the end, less than one million made it off-world. But the thoughts of the onlookers were not with the countless billions of dead seer, nor with their remaining colonies slowly succumbing to disease, famine, and casual orbit bombardment. What almost everyone paid close attention to was humanity doing the unthinkable. The permanent and irreversible destruction of nine planetary bodies capable of supporting life. They marveled at the lack of logic, the missing purpose, the denial of value, the total disregard of ethics. And they were afraid. Afraid of dealing with something so boundless in its fury. When the Galactic Council voted to send a large expeditionary force into the Sol system, they found Luna to be an abandoned ghost moon run by a crude AI, and Mars and Terra transformed into bunker worlds, with societies of unknown size barely in the information age, hiding deep below the crust, refusing all contact. Punishment was deemed prohibitively expensive and potentially immoral, considering that Terra seemed unaware of even the exact number of her colonies. Arriving at the same time in orbit above the great city world Mundus Universalis, seat of the Galactic Council, home base of the Federal Fleets, and the location of the Controller Bureaucracy, were eleven outdated human super-dreadnoughts with barely an escort. There was minimum communication, no warnings, no suspicious behavior, except that fifty-six ships proudly proclaimed to come from a total of forty-two different systems spread halfway across the galaxy. With no clear hierarchy guiding them, they were there. The cradle of their species, the homeworld of their culture, was under apparent attack. Yet they were there. Not one ship considered flying to join Terra's defense. They were sure in their purpose. Counter-aggression proved once again as humanity's natural first response. And as thousands of the finest military vessels in the galaxy, sponsored by hundreds of different races, watched in disbelief, the eleven super-dreadnoughts started dropping 10,000 metric tons of antimatter warheads onto Mundus Universalis. More net tonnage than all other race combined had ever created. The heat release during the first seconds of the onslaught ignited the atmosphere, oxidizing even nitrogen in an unstoppable chain reaction, 
and as the eleven super dreadnoughts burned brightly in orbit, completely obscured in a slowly expanding cloud of a million tons of ablative armor, willfully ignoring all damage and continuously dropping warheads, Mundus Universalis oceans boiled off while the planet's crust was cracked open, revealing the molten core. Shock and awe is not an exclusively human tactic, but it certainly got a new meaning that day, because this time the galactic community even overlooked the total loss of a tenth world capable of supporting life. In the words of Rear Admiral Heliril, with his fleet at Seoul, just about everyone who mattered died today. The galactic community had thought humanity properly scared, now fully aware of their place in the larger order of things. And they were right. Humanity was scared to death. But the only thing that makes their hate burn more intensely than the feeling of utter helplessness is the ongoing exposure to fear, both of which had been provided to last for generations. If somebody would have told me that one day the 230 races of the Galactic Council would start an all-out war against a single enemy species in possession of less than 50 systems, I would have imagined a foe frighteningly far advanced, tapping into resources no one else could even imagine ways for utilizing. I would have imagined them to have tamed the universe. I would have dreamed of Dyson spheres encasing white dwarves, Siphon stations extracting matter directly from blue giants. Battleships the size of moons and force shields encasing entire systems. But no. Tell me. Where would you hit a foe that has no heart, no brain, no central nervous system? What do you tell your troop before the invasion of yet another bunker world? A world they will have to clear level by level room by room, inch by bloody inch, a world they promptly will have to watch get torn to pieces by a direct hit of its own moon, in the unlikely case they do eventually wash it clean with a torrent of their own blood. How do you tell the council that the enemy that just generously salted yet another agricultural world with the vilest of radioisotopes just because its farming colony was destroyed? that this very enemy has just discovered how to fold enough space to create black holes with its gravity projectors. How do you manage a galactic community in which more than half of the races do not have core worlds anymore? Difficult questions, you think. Finding the answer is trivial. You look at human history. For if anybody has had to deal with this before, it will be them. But you will not like the answer. You will have to master hate yourself. When humanity had to face a foe like this, they called them guerrillas and terrorists, coerced billions into hating them and fighting them as a result in some of the most abhorrent crimes against all ethics you will come across in your study of history. And yet, the terrorists seem to have won frequently. Also, in the Chronicles of Human History, we found another solution, hidden between the lines, a solution more subtle and cheaper by many orders of magnitude. It takes more than one to make the spiral of violence spin, and human memory is short. So if you manage to get out of their way, 
they will soon find something else to hate. Considering that humanity today holds more than 4,000 systems, most likely it will hate them right back. <laughs>